You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling. Today we're talking about war, and my guest is Michael Kluckner. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nicola. Can you uh, briefly introduce yourself? Uh, I am an artist who generally does book illustration, um, graphic novels, but I've also illustrated a number of quite formal history books, um, some of them on Vancouver, some Canada, Toronto, and elsewhere. Wonderful. Well, this is exactly why I reached out to you, because it mm-hmm. uh, sounds like you're going to have a great deal of knowledge on this subject. And for the purpose of this episode, we're going to be primarily focusing on the social repercussions of war in Vancouver, uh, on the traditional and unceded territories of the uh, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, mm-hmm. which is where this podcast is recorded. That's why we're focusing on Vancouver. But with that in mind, uh, we're not going to be focusing so much on the sort of destruction of buildings, of infrastructure, or the uh, destruction of social services. Those are huge social impacts of war, but not so much felt mm-hmm. here in Vancouver. Um, so I just want to preface that before we begin. And uh, I think your work has intersected with the topic of war quite often throughout um, your career. Is that correct to say? Well, yeah, I think inevitably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're dealing with this, uh, whether it's um, something to do with the Japanese-Canadian internment during the Second World War, or uh, you find some place and it turns out it was a shipyard site and the shipbuilding was the main activity in wartime uh, mm-hmm. for this. So, uh, th- you know, there are a myriad of these or, you know, you go into, um, uh, you, you walk along Spanish Banks Beach and you keep going and you come upon an old gun tower that's out on the beach there. So mm-hmm. somebody was intending to defend this from someone at some time. So there are all these sort of things that are still on the landscape. Right. And can you briefly explain some of the work that you do with the Vancouver Historical Society? Vancouver Historical Society is just, I mean, it's exactly what it says it is. It's its a group of people, volunteer group of people, been around since the 1930s. And uh, we put on eight lectures a year on a whole range of topics. I mean, everything from gay Vancouver in the 1970s to how bicycle accidents were recorded through through all the history. Um, just depending on who's out there, depending on what the topics are and how we feel that they, that they will uh, go. Uh, these lectures are presented on the fourth Thursday of the month at the Museum of Vancouver. Uh, they're free and open to the public. And they're also recorded recorded and they're put up on our YouTube channel. Oh, wow. And so we have a record of lectures going back to 2016 of just about everything that's been presented to us for that. So um, so it's really quite the archive and and uh, a, a dizzying array of presenters mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and topics. So, you know, we're not wedded to any particular narrative of Vancouver history, you know, Vancouver just being the name of the place where uh, where it takes place. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And generally, when we're starting these episodes, we talk about what is the subject. Mm-hmm. And I think that may not be necessary in this case. Mm-hmm. You know, what is war? War is yeah. uh, an intense armed conflict. But before we begin to focus on the impacts of war in Vancouver specifically, I wonder if you're able to touch on what societal impacts war has, just generally speaking. Total tragedy and disruption. You know, for some people, it's an economic boom time. For other people, it's um, 
you know, your, your child, your typically in, in the past, your son doesn't come home. In other cases, um, it brings out absolutely the worst in people in terms of prejudice. So it's, it's got this range of things. It, it heightens emotion uh, to the point of, uh, it also tends to draw people together. Uh, mm-hmm. I should say a majority of people who are in the country, it tends to kind of draw them together. And so people look back on it one way or another as being a very special time. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the thing that Vancouver is very fortunate in is that, um, uh, hasn't been invaded. I mm-hmm. should say if, if I were an indigenous person, I would say no, it was invaded, mm-hmm. um, way back. But, but we're talking about, Vancouver is a kind of a colonial construct as a, as a, um, a kind of a Western city, I guess. It hasn't been invaded, but it did have this tremendous disruption in it. And then if you also look at a consequence of, for example, the First World War, it wraps up with the Spanish flu mm-hmm. coming in as the, 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 the Spanish influenza is, is coming on as a pandemic, just at the point that the war is winding down. And so as if there hadn't been enough suffering of individual people, you get a tremendous loss of life, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the city all over the world, really. Just, to, you know, it makes the, uh, it makes COVID just look like almost nothing by comparison. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, I suppose people get almost immune to suffering for a while. And then as it comes out, Often there will be an economic depression at the end of the war, uh, and then that will be followed by an economic boom. And so it's, it's that sort of situation. And that's repeated itself through Vancouver history. And, and there was one more war that we weren't directly involved in, the Vietnam War, but it had a tremendous impact here because of the number of war resistors who came here in the 1960s and the 1970s. Right. And you touched on this briefly before uh, about how it's mostly sons that were lost historically in, in wars. Can you maybe um, talk about what the experiences would be like uh, from the perspective of women during the war as opposed to the perspective from men during the war or during a war? There would be the there would be the separation. There would be the the sense of loss. There would be the need to let's put it this way: single parent. You know, young young families. Men went off to war. Women were left here with their children. Uh, there were also, um, particularly, you think of the Second World War. There were tremendous uh, economic and work opportunities for women that hadn't been around before that. Partly because 1930s period of the Great Depression, there wasn't really work for for uh, almost anybody but um but women entered the industrial workforce in the second world war particularly and then all of the advances that they had made and all of the kind of economic freedom that that had given them was effectively taken away at the end of the war because the men came home the men needed jobs that was the um that was the way that the society worked at that point and so women then retreated from that position of of economic power and a lot of freedom and then went into the late 40s and the 1950s, which historically is a period of women really being in roles, really being in roles as as wives, as mothers, as not a whole lot else. I mean, the, the, the world that I grew up in, in the 1950s, 1960s was like that. Right, right. I wanted to move on now to some questions around 
basically going through the the different wars that have occurred uh, that Canada has been involved in over mm-hmm. the years, uh, starting with. I believe World War One would be the first war since Vancouver's foundation. Is that correct? Yeah, you could you could say the Boer War, but there was really there was really no organized group that went from the Vancouver area, and that was in South Africa. It was a colonial war of actually two effective colonial nations fighting over that. Um, what the Boer War tended to do was heightened patriotism here, uh, patriotism being um, the love of the mother country, the United Kingdom, uh, mm-hmm. at that point. But the First World War saw this enormous patriotic sense of of defending England particularly because they figured that if if Germany wasn't stopped in France that it was going to be um, England, Britain that was going to be invaded. And so there was uh, um, recruitment of people from, um, as they say, from all walks of life. If I say even the, the, the Japanese immigrants who had come here at that point, who were refused the opportunity to enlist in uh, in, in Vancouver in British Columbia, they went to Alberta and they were able to enlist in the regiment there. And there's, um, a, a very beautiful and rather touching war memorial in Stanley Park that people might know of, of the uh, Japanese Canadian community and the sacrifices that were made there. So you had, you had the local regiments, Duke of Connaught's own rifles, now known as the BC Regiment, and, and, um, number of other regiments that, that formed out of here. And, uh, large, large number, uh, thousands of young men went initially to training camps in Eastern Canada and then overseas and then onto, um, onto the, the Western Front where they behaved absolutely heroically. And they would talk about, um, uh, the Canadian troops uh, being, in effect, the most effective shock troops of the First World War. It just sounds absolutely ghastly, but Vimy Ridge being a classic battle in which the the Canadians won the day. And so coming out of all this is this sense of intense patriotism, and it's patriotism for Canada. Uh, Canada is beginning, by the time of the First World War, to, I guess you would say, peek out from underneath the British flag and say, we want our independence. We don't want to be so dependent on, on Britain. Also, that reflects, um, immigrants coming here from all over the world and particularly a, des- a desire to trade more with the United States. Mm-hmm. And so Canada declares war in, in August of 1914, right at the very beginning of that. United States stays out of it until April of 1917. And then they come in just at this critical point where it's been a stalemate and they're able to tip the balance and feel very proud and righteous of themselves over that. Uh, There was a map in the Vancouver City Archives I remember seeing at one point where somebody had plotted all of the deaths of servicemen in it. And it was just this forest of little dots. You, You couldn't particularly say that one was on one side, uh, you know, that there was one area of the city that, that had more than other. They, they were, they were quite spread around, uh, quite evenly. And, uh, so these are all the, uh, all the casualties. And of course, people came back maimed. They came back gassed. They came back shell shocked, which we would, we would now say PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, they came back. Some of them came back effectively blinded from, uh, from the uh, chlorine gas and mustard gas that the Germans were using on the Western Front. So it was a very, very difficult time. And then they came back into a period where uh, coming back in, in 1918, 
Um, I mentioned the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. uh, there was also a sudden collapse in economic activity as the shipyards closed down. And so... Sort of like a double whammy, then you get the Spanish flu, you get the reduction of, of work, I suppose. Reduction of work, and, uh, and so it became a period just like while the war was still going on of, of tremendous labor activism. So mm -hmm. uh, the BC electric streetcar system went on strike, there were strikes at the docks and so on, and a, a, a real militancy. This was a period of, of, how Russian Revolution had just happened in the previous year, and so you you had all this kind of ferment happening, and of course made worse by the fact that there weren't good jobs for people to come back to. And generally, if I mean this is this is a total generalization, but if people have well-paid jobs, and generally they they are kind of contented in in their lives, and I mean you you compare that with our current situation where so many people, well, maybe they've got jobs, but the jobs are not paying them what they need to live. And so you're getting more and more unrest happening here. And that was the case at the end of the First World War. Um, the, as the economic um, depression uh, that, that happened here, 1919, 1920, 1921, uh, got going, of course, with that, that conflict in society, then it brings up some of the old uh, racist uh, beliefs of people, um, uh, particularly anti-Asian racism at that point. And so you you get a whole slew of of provincial legislation that is uh, that that is effectively anti-Asian, anti anti-Chinese, particularly. And this kind of ferment continues through until about the mid-1920s, by which time prosperity has returned and everybody settles down, more or less. Right, the roaring 20s. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, you know, the 20s didn't really roar here the way that they sort of did, maybe more in a place like Toronto, certainly more in the United States. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was a period of significant prosperity here in the 1920s, and that, of course, comes to a crashing halt in 1929 with the Great Depression. So, right. And uh, and people are on the roads and people are homeless and so on. But uh, but that's not that's not war. That's this sort of social history. Right. And I mean, I think that's an important thing to bring up because we're talking about the societal impact that war can have. And it seems like in at least some ways it's related. I mean, some of it might have to do with the uh, influenza. Mm -hmm. There may be these natural ebbs and flows mm -hmm. of economic growth and um, disparity. But I wonder if, um, was there a lot of anti-war sentiment at any point during this time? The idea that, well, our lives are really difficult, I suppose, in the Great Depression or during the influenza pandemic, mm -hmm. where people were just saying that this war wasn't worth it. Why did we do this? Well, I, I, you know, I suppose there was, but if you look at Vancouver around 1920, that the vast majority of the population was probably had origins in the British Isles. Mm -hmm. uh, there were there were Italians, there were some Germans, yes, who kept their heads down. Um, uh, there were, you know, uh, five or ten percent uh, of of uh, Chinese. Canadians, uh, similar uh, Japanese Canadians, and then of course Indigenous people, uh, um, some of whom had uh, had volunteered and managed to uh, managed to sign up and serve in regiments and everything, and then they got back to Canada, found they had no rights. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's all this kind of bubbling away underneath the surface. Uh, I think the broader social and social justice issues were capitalism versus socialism. 
in the broadest sense. And, and, and that certainly is a significant part of Vancouver history around that time and then coming back again very, very strongly in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. But um, you come through and then uh, Second World War is declared in 1939 uh, when uh, Germany invades Poland and uh, all of the Allies come together and Canada, you know, as, a, as an independent dominion at that point actually declares war by itself in a sense. It, 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 it opts to come in right at the beginning. And um, you have that same very, very strong patriotic idea that comes forward. It gets rid of the uncertainty that was left over from the Depression and still a kind of a difficult economy in the late 1930s. All of a sudden, common cause. Germans are invading our allies. God, it really got, it really got bad. People are signing up. They have this sense of um, uh, of their going forward together. It's the sort of thing that if you, you know, you have to ask yourself, what would it take now in terms of um, environmental disaster or climate change disaster to pull people into a common cause like that, where they would all work together towards towards a solution? War certainly did that, and so mm-hmm. Second World War gets underway, and and um, you know, it's a European war for two years until. Uh, the Japanese, well, let me, let me just back up. I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. One of the, one of the interesting things about the 1930s is the Japanese empire invades China, 1936, 1937. And you begin to see in Vancouver a sympathy for the Chinese people who are living here, for the Chinese Canadian people, even though they have you know, they've been subject to all kinds of racism. There's been effectively an exclusion act that's been underway. And, and uh, uh, a lot of people will be aware that we've just celebrated on July the 1st, 2023, the centenary of the Chinese Immigration Act that effectively banned all Chinese immigration into Canada. But by the 1930s, the Chinese Canadian people who are here um, are begin to be being looked at with some sympathy because people can see this horrible aggression of the Japanese and you know the what's called the uh, the rape of Nanking, uh, the city of Nanjing today of just just hundreds of thousands of civilians apparently killed uh, at that time and uh, so the people who the Chinese Canadian people here who are kind of marooned by this and so they begin to be seen as being people with a kind of a common cause. Nevertheless, in that period, late 30s, well, there's no European war. The European war starts September 1939. And so there's this rallying again, and, and the, the blitz of London and, and, uh, and, and British cities in 1940. So that population, that kind of white Anglo population of, of Vancouver really finds a common cause in that. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of enlistment and industry picks up, the shipyards are picking up and all the rest of it. Because that's quite a shift from uh, World War One, where the Japanese were fighting with the Allies, right? And that's and exactly right. Now it's yes. being flipped on its head. Yes, and I and I didn't I didn't mention that earlier that that Japan was actually an ally of Britain, and uh, that was one of the reasons that because Japan and Britain were allies, that the Canadian government never passed a kind of an exclusion immigration law against Japanese people. Uh, at that time. And that was why you got such a strong, big, like 22,000 Japanese Canadian people here by the 1930s. Um, mm-hmm. And because 
men and both men and women were immigrating and they were forming families and they were having children and so you had a lot going on so that that was that was a very very good point and in fact the the um because the west coast of canada in the first world war was so undefended there was effectively all of the british ships had left for more of the war zone that the uh, the, the japanese navy was said to be providing a little bit of defense against the german navy there were a couple of german cruisers that were uh, that were prowling around the Pacific. And uh, because of fears that there might be an attack by German cruisers coming into into Vancouver Harbor, that there were gun emplacements put at Ferguson Point and Stanley Park during the First World War. Um, December 7th, 1941, as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt American president said, a day that will live in infamy, the Japanese Navy, uh, Japanese armed forces attacked Pearl Harbor, the American naval base uh, in Hawaii. And all of a sudden, the war that had been a European war became a world war. And uh, this gave an opportunity, well, I mean, a necessity, effectively, for some further defense emplacements to be made in the Vancouver area. And uh, so on the beach out near Point Grey, there's still a gun tower there, a gun a gun emplacement, and a few other little buildings like that. And um, if you happen to go into the Museum of Anthropology, and there's a room in there where there's a very, very beautiful Bill Reed sculpture that is put in. It's actually put into a gun emplacement that was there. Okay. And if you were a university student, UBC student in the 1950s and 1960s, and you were looking for housing, you might have found your housing at Fort Camp, which was this collection of shacks right out effectively on Point Grey. And, and oh. that was um, left over from that period, all gone now, all, mm -hmm. uh, all, all demolished. But because, Jap because Japan had um, entered the war against uh, Britain, Canada, the United States, it <clears throat> gave the perfect opportunity for um, people here I'm talking about the Town Planning Commission. I'm talking about number of federal and, and uh, provincial politicians who had been very anti-Asian, very anti-Japanese during the 1930s. It gave them the perfect opportunity to act. And so beginning in late winter of, uh, of 1942, um, signs went up telling um, all uh, people of Japanese ancestry, regardless of whether they were born here or not, uh, telling them that they had to um, report to the RCMP, uh, that they had to register. And then the, the um, administrative mechanism began to displace all these people from the coast. Initially, taking all their property, and this includes all the homes that they had and, and uh, the homes they owned and the businesses and so on, but... Um, uh, Taking their uh, taking their property, and it was going to be held by the um, uh, custodian of enemy alien property, mm -hmm. and that included fish boats. Uh, Japanese ancestry people were very, uh, very, very prominent in the uh, in the fishing industry here, and so you had this emptying out of the Powell Street area in Vancouver, um, which had been. Well, sometimes known as Little Tokyo, sometimes known as Japantown, but, uh, but, but typically I think known as Powell Street. And then also Steveston in Richmond, which had a very strong Japanese community with the, uh, with the fish boats and the canneries and all of that. And so all of these people, um, waited 
not knowing exactly what was going to happen. And then the, uh, the federal government, with cooperation of the provincial government, put in a BC Securities Commission, and it rounded people up initially. People, it was all of the uh, Japanese ancestry people, which the vast majority of them, about 22,000 of them, who lived within 100 miles of the coast. Mm-hmm. So that's a line you think of about where hope is at the eastern end of the Fraser Valley and then heading north from there. And, um, and because most of the Japanese people who had migrated here had, had, they, they were effectively maritime people. Uh, this big scoop of these people got nearly all of them and they were, they were put in, uh, most of them into the Pacific National Exhibition, into the, a lot of them into the livestock building and into the forum. So the, uh, the administrative machinery was put into place to create these internment camps up in the interior of British Columbia. So they're effectively jails, but they don't have barbed wire around them. It's an interesting contrast with the United States where, um, the United States government did the same thing. It displaced all of the Japanese American population off the coast, but it put them into 10 huge camps that were like, well, effectively like concentration camps mm-hmm. out in the, um, well, eastern California and then in the states sort of east of the Rocky Mountains. And, uh, and about, uh, about a hundred thousand Japanese Americans went into these camps for the duration of the war. Our people here went into ghost towns up in the interior. So Sandon, uh, Greenwood, um, New Denver. These were all places that had been uh, built up during the mining boom of the early part of the 20th century. Then they were more or less abandoned as, um, as the minerals ran out. And so, uh, so they were up there and they made the best of it effectively, uh, made the best of a very, very difficult time. Uh, Lillowit is another place. Uh, the closest, the closest camp to Vancouver is Tashmi. Tashmi, just east of Hope on the Hope-Princeton Highway. I mean, you could do a day trip up there, and it's been beautifully interpreted in the last several years of the camp that went in there and how it was organized and and so on. Um, so uh, an extremely difficult time for uh, for for Japanese Canadians. And um, for the rest of the population, well, it was a boom time economically here uh, for shipyard work, um, Extreme housing shortages in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. The uh, people who had been living in houseboats and little squatter shacks all along the water, um, some of them were able to hang on until after the war. So Coal Harbor, where all of the uh, super luxurious condos and the yachts are today, that was all houseboats of people who worked in the in the factories doing war work there. There was a, a small Boeing aircraft manufacturing plant there. There was another one uh, at uh, Vancouver Airport on Sea Island. And the little community of Burkeville, if you happen to find your way across the Arthur Lang Bridge and you get on to you get on to Sea Island there and instead of going right to YVR turning right and going to YVR you turn to your left and you'll wind through this picturesque funny little community that was all the war workers communities of that period and the Boeing plant that was where the South Airport is now 
you know, all these stories of people packed into old rooming houses in the West End. Um, when uh, moving day came at the end of the month, people would uh, move their possessions by wheelbarrow through the streets of the West End. Um, big fights in places like Shaughnessy Heights, where people were turning the old mansions into rooming houses, and then they were getting sued by some of the wealthy people there for violating the zoning and so on. So it was a real period of, of turmoil. And... Um, and everywhere else, uh, when you think of a kind of a rooming house landscape of people of my age, like I'm in my 70s, right? So I'm, I'm thinking back 1960s, 1970s, when, when I was young and there were all of these rooming houses that were there. And these were places that had been converted during the Great Depression, converted during the Second World War for housing for people and for all of the, uh, all of the workers who were here. And then, of course, the soldiers went overseas, um, generally into, into a time, 1940, 41, 1942. They were all bivouacked in southern England, primarily in southern England. There was the uh, catastrophic Dieppe raid in 1942, where it was an attempt to sort of test the German defenses. Great loss of life, uh, Canadian loss of life in, uh, in that, because this was... Effectively, the Canadian raid, the Canadians were chosen as they were going to be the ones that were going to do that. My mother was a, was a military nurse in, uh, in, um, uh, southern England and, and she didn't talk very much about her time as a nurse, but she talked about all of the wounded coming back from Dieppe and just how they were absolutely frantic trying to save lives, uh, after that in, uh, in 1942. And then a little bit later on in the war in 1943, the Canadians take a big part in the invasion of Sicily and then the drive up through Italy mm-hmm. going there. And then, uh, um, June 6th, 1944, uh, D-Day. If you watch American media or you watch American movies or, or read American books, you would think that it was entirely the Americans who <laughs> invaded, uh, invaded France. But the Canadians were, did the beaches further north mm-hmm. than the Americans did and the British were in there too and, in other beaches. And then the, the Canadian role was, uh, driving sort of east and then north and, and uh, effectively liberating Holland. Belgium and Holland, and that, as the um, Americans and the British pushed uh, east from that. So, lots of casualties, lots of uh, lots of deaths, and the newspapers. You read the newspapers of that time, and you just think, "My God, what it must have been like to be here." And you're getting these war reports and so on. Mm-hmm. on it, uh, and I do want to touch on that point as well about um, how information is relayed, because as you point out. If you look to American media, it seems like they were the ones who ended the war, essentially, on Mm -hmm. their own. And I think the same thing applies when you look at media related to, for instance, Japanese internment camps. Yes. It's sort of glossed over. Um, Mm -hmm. We we like to think, at least um, the people who craft these narratives, like to think that... um, we were the the saviors. We're going into Europe. Mm-hmm. We're taking <clears> out <throat> the bad guys. They did everything wrong. We're mm-hmm. the good guys. Um, but in reality, there were a lot of atrocities committed all around. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that's unfortunately the case with with pretty much anything in history. Is mm-hmm. you're always going to find that there's these nuances. There's different atrocities being committed by uh, people in all positions, whether mm-hmm. they were sort of 
overarchingly in the right or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wanted to point that out when it comes to this, that a lot of our history is um, not necessarily subjective, like, you know, what happened happened. Mm -hmm. It's factual, but it depends on who's relaying that history, yeah. how we're going to interpret yeah, and, it. And, and, and the, the victors tell the tale. Right, you know, exactly. Uh, and, and, uh, and that was the case certainly with um, the way that, that history was presented in schools uh, when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, indigenous history wasn't romanticized and it wasn't glossed over. It was done quite respectfully, I think you would say. But... It effectively said that there was this inevitable juggernaut of civilization, and I put that in quotes, Christian civilization would be another way of describing it, that was going to take over this land. Uh, You know, the Americans, with their directness with language, had the term manifest destiny. And uh, Canadians, being much more slippery with language, never really defined the what would you call it the colonial project i suppose at that time mm-hmm. uh, this massive uh, migration of people from europe into uh, into canada i mean the narrative the narratives are constantly being told and retold um interesting um italian people were of course the enemy mm-hmm. and uh during the second world war not during the first world war but during the second world war um they had very very good leadership here uh, that managed to keep most of the Italian people who were in Vancouver out of trouble with the police. Uh, you know, there was not that kind of reaction as there was against German nationals who were here. Mm-hmm. And in the same in the First World War, the German nationals, um, uh, people going in into, um, into prison camps. But there's a racial aspect of it that, ha- that really hit the Japanese hard. Chinese people who were here, Quite a, quite a number of Chinese people enlisted, um, and, um, and became part of the army. Uh, there, there's been these, these very, very moving, um, uh, exhibitions at, uh, the Chinese Cultural Center and now coming into the, uh, the new, um, the new Chinese Canadian Museum that's just opened of the role that a lot of Chinese people, Chinese Canadian people played during the Second World War, particularly. And all of this, and, and it becomes part of the narrative of, of everybody finally shaking off much of their racism after the war is over. And 1947, immigration reopens of Chinese people into Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, the restrictions begin to come off. So, you know, sometimes it takes, a war and everything going back, and people give their heads a shake, and they say, "This was absolutely crazy." The Japanese, uh, the Japanese case um, in the United States, uh, they began to release Japanese American people from these prison camps even before the end of the war, even before the atomic bombs were were dropped on Japan in mm-hmm. uh, in August of 1945. Um, and these people, and as I understand it, that nearly all of the Japanese-American people got their property back at the end of the war. Oh, okay. Um, in Canada, nobody got their property back. Right. It had all been sold off. And, and uh, I would invite uh, listeners, viewers of this, to look for um, a, a website called Landscapes of Injustice. I think it's landscapesofinjustice.ca. And this was a, a multi-year 
project involving all kinds of people from um, uh, from the Nikkei community and and uh, and and academics and so on, trying to get to the bottom of how the decisions were made to um, uh, to displace the Japanese to um, you know to to sell off their property and then how they couldn't get it back. And I mean, even in in um, just to complete the thought about the way that the Canadian government treated uh, the Japanese Canadian people. The wartime restrictions on their movement in Canada didn't come off until, believe it or not, April Fool's Day, 1949. Oh. So the war ended August 1945. And everybody else sort of began to go back to normal, but Japanese Canadian people could not return to the coast of British Columbia until the middle of 1949. Wow. Because of these restrictions, so it took that long for them to shake this stuff off. And uh, again, I invite people to go to the Nikkei National Museum in Burnaby to look at this, to um, to look at the Landscapes of Injustice website, and to try to fit this into a broader narrative of people moving here, people being in control, people making laws, how these things went. Um, why? Why, despite all this? Was it attractive for people to emigrate from Japan? Mm-hmm. Why did they want to come here? Why did Chinese people want to come here, despite all of the racism and the prejudice? Um, one more little comparable. Chinese immigration into the United States was banned, totally banned, from 1882 till 1943. Wow. So, you know, you've got, you've got these broad narratives and the, the wartime, the wartime events are, to a degree, a kind of a blip in them, mm-hmm. you know. It, it uh, so you know history is really complicated, and 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 you you can't do the soundbite narrative of what happened. It, it um, it's really important for people to try to figure out. Let's say let's say you're a white person and you imagine yourself being a working class white person, and and you're from Scotland, say, and You've effectively been displaced off your land in Scotland because of the Enclosures Act. And so the only option that you have is working in some godforsaken factory in Northern England. And the opportunity comes to move to North America. So you might go to the States or you might come to Canada. And you're looking to improve yourself. You're looking to improve your life, but you're becoming part of a narrative that is displacing other people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just really, it's really difficult if you, if you imagine yourself back in that situation and, and as you would say, imagine yourself now. You are wanting to make a better life. You're wanting to migrate to Canada and become part of Canadian society. But as you're doing that, you're becoming part of a longer term narrative. I'm saying particularly about Indigenous people mm-hmm. because it's about in- <laughs> It's a narrative that unfortunately has an impact on other groups, such as indigenous people and increasingly a stratified society. So you might be coming here to improve your life, but your act of doing that might displace that. So it's all this stuff. And, and wartime just in a sense kind of shortens the timeline on these things. Right. Well, I find it's quite interesting and also disheartening that there seems to just wait a second. <laughs> When you look into our history, you see so many examples of uh, people discriminating against others based off of their ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you see that in uh, the Vietnam War. 
people are uh, afraid of certain ethnicities, uh, or you see that when it comes to the Cold War, that distrust of, of Russian people, uh, or even these days, COVID hit, suddenly there's this rise of anti-Asian uh, hate. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that in a recent podcast. So there's always these uh, issues, they, they, they haven't gone away. But I, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you know, but I was uh, watching a documentary recently about World War II and, and Hitler's point of view, which was essentially looking to what America had done to displace indigenous people and said, I want to emulate that. I want to copy the techniques that they used to round up Jewish people and, and other minorities mm -hmm. within uh, Germany and, and the areas that Germany occupied. Is that um, a narrative that you're aware of? Um, and, and if you are, are you able to touch mm -hmm. on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of the narratives um, that um, when you look at Nazi Germany and you look at what it was doing, um, and anti-Semitism didn't begin at the time of the American, I mean, you know, the, the American displacement of, of indigenous people, the manifest destiny thing. It was just a continuation of, of a process of, of people shoving out other people. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Jews in... Um, uh, Jews in Germany, Jews all over Europe had been, um, uh, you know, under, under tremendous stress, uh, being moved out of losing all their rights of, of, um, of, of being effectively exiled out of countries. And this had been going on for hundreds of years and going back to, um, a Christian narrative, I suppose. Um, mm. um, religion has never been the sort of thing that has brought people together. In my opinion, uh, it's just uh, added to the divisions of people. As George Carlin would say, more people have been killed in the name of religion than for any other reason. Uh, yes, yes, and and um, and I mean the whole the whole Jewish uh, situation is really is really quite interesting. Um, I just finished doing uh, a graphic novel. This is uh, doing the art for a graphic novel comic book on the Bund, mm -hmm. the Jewish labor socialist uh, organization that was active in Ukraine, Russia, Poland in uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have been more timely because Russia just invaded Ukraine, you know, at the time that, uh, that we were getting started on this. Um, and then the splits within the Jewish community between the people who wanted to uh, speak Hebrew and, and create a homeland in Israel, the promised land, and go there, um, which, by the way, was already occupied by other people. But mm. so there's that, there's that narrative going on. The, um, the, the, the Bundists, the more secular Jews, uh, socialist Jews, uh, were part of that incredible diaspora. That, that uh, took place um, and had a huge impact on culture of North America in in Canada, particularly Montreal and Toronto, but also also in Vancouver a little bit. And then you think of uh, you think of New York City, you think of all of uh, all of that sort of thing going on. The human capacity to abuse other people whom you can define as being different is just limitless. Right, uh, and. Um, I could talk about my childhood and say that um, school in Westside Vancouver, 1950s, 1960s, a couple of Chinese Canadian kids in there, but there were so few of them that they weren't a problem, and so we all got along. Mm -hmm. um, Jewish kids, uh, same, 
there weren't that many of them. Every, everybody got along. I don't remember any uh, real over-discrimination about that. But you would find people who were looking for people to um, uh, discriminate against or to criticize or, or whatever, and they say, oh, the Catholics. So you would get anti-Catholic stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because this was effectively a Protestant area right. and, you know, more or less a Protestant city, more or less people, uh, people migrating here from, uh, from the United Kingdom, mainly. Much different in Toronto, much different in Montreal, uh, a very, very different kind of a narrative. But it's that ability that people have to find reasons to dislike people. And so often it seems to come out of a situation where, well, you're a German in the 1930s, and there's this guy named Hitler, and he says, we need Lebensraum. We need room to expand. We need room to move. Mm. Oh, there are these ethnic, uh, these, these ethnic Germans in the Sudetenland. We'll just invade, we'll invade the country next door. We'll just boot everybody out. Um, along the way, we can find other people. Well, we've got these historical imagined grievances against Jewish people, so we'll do that. So, the, you know, and so, in a lot of cases, it creates just that kind of creeping racism that you would see in Canadian history or American history. Um, God knows American history is much more complex, probably, you could say, than Canadian history on that because of slavery. But as people begin to fall behind other people and they become envious and they look around and they say, who can I blame? Or this guy who has no effectively citizenship rights or human rights, um, I think he's willing to work for less than I am, and therefore I hate him, and it's driving wages down. I mean, that was why uh, so much of the anti-Asian discrimination going on here, kind of wartime stuff, and then going into the 1920s was, uh, well, and even even before that, even before the war, uh, was, was based on um, uh, primarily Chinese-Canadian people, but also Japanese-Canadian people being uh, willing to work for less. And white people. We recently oh. talked about that on our uh, xenophobia uh -huh. podcast, uh -huh. where um, there's this assumption that newcomers are here to steal jobs, essentially. And that seems to be ongoing, whether it's um, Mexican people, and uh, typically in the southern U.S. Or, um, or, or the, um, you know, you get a kind of a nativist response to, to immigration. I mean, it's tough. To, you know, all, all, all this stuff is tough because you, you think of the majority of people being here and having a kind of a stake in the place and then maybe losing it, losing it or having it chipped away at. So that mm -hmm. would be indigenous people, big time. Mm -hmm. um, it would be quite working class kid who dad was able to buy a little house or something like that, you know, being a unionized sawmill worker. Mm -hmm. And then looks around now and and there's just no way that they can get that they can get a toehold into society. So we've spent a fair amount of time talking about the world wars, but there's been some other wars that have happened uh, that have affected Vancouver since then. There's the um, Korean War, Vietnam War, Gulf War, Cold mm -hmm. War, Afghanistan War. Uh, can you maybe talk about some of these wars and the societal impacts that they've had here in, yeah. in Vancouver? Yeah. Korea, like a miniature version of, um, of World War II, um, there was no draft. There was no conscription here. Um, people who wanted to went overseas. We didn't really talk about 
uh, there, there, whether there was a draft here as opposed to the United States, which had compulsory conscription. Um, but, um, but there wasn't any for, um, uh, for the Korean War. You come forward into, into the Vietnam War and, um, Canada was in this position where, um, it was the one of three members on a United Nations uh, commission that was set up to uh, enforce the the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, left over from colonial French, um, nineteen fifty four when when the uh, when the French were booted out of Vietnam, and uh, the the North went communist. Mm-hmm. Just following after China going communist in the late 1940s. So Canada is in this position of being part of a United Nations group and so therefore can't really get involved with the Vietnam War as the Americans get ramped into it in the early 1960s in an anti-communist fight. Australia joins in with the United States in that. But we're just sitting up here north of the 49th parallel going, this is getting really bad here. And because there was the draft in the United States, and so you hit 18 down there, and unless you were able to work out some kind of an exemption for health reasons or, you know, maybe you were at a certain university and you could work that out, you were drafted into the Army or the Navy, and uh, and probably you would be sent to Vietnam. And uh, increasingly the sense that that this was an unjust war Mm-hmm. That what was going on was effectively um, <clears throat> a military dictatorship in the south of Vietnam versus, I guess you could say, a communist dictatorship in the north part of Vietnam, and um, and rather than getting involved with that, people were just saying, "Hell no, we won't go. We don't want to be part of that war." And uh, and so you had a flood of Americans and predominantly, I would say, white and well-educated Americans who had had a kind of more of a liberal or left-leaning philosophy perhaps more than than working class kids did and certainly than than African American kids did who didn't have uh, quite the same options there and so they come up here possibly as many as 30,000 men 40,000 men it's really hard to get a sense of of how many were but interestingly an equal if not greater number of American women came here in some cases, bringing their young children, their teenage boys coming up and coming into Canada using what were very uh, liberal immigration laws at that time to apply for landed immigrant status and becoming part of Canadian society. And uh, it just had a huge impact here. It shifted um, Vancouver area particularly away from being this kind of backwater of the 1950s, early 1960s into being a more radical culture, brought the hippie culture, um, you know, that had started here, but I mean, brought it and, and added to it here in the late 1960s. And, um, there was also a sense of, of organizing that they had been much more a part of in the United States at that point, organizing against the Vietnam War, so coming up. And so you're getting a group of people finding common cause with Canadians and and uh, groups coming out of that, such as, well, Greenpeace would be one that, mm-hmm. would, uh, that, that came out of that whole anti-war movement of the time. And uh, so it, it had a tremendous impact on 
the Vancouver area, and then also in other parts of the interior, particularly the Kootenays around Nelson. There were a oh. lot of American war resistors who went into the Kootenays and still very much that kind of um, hippie, hippie's a kind of a loaded word, but kind of counter countercultural community that mm -hmm. went into there. Um, and, uh, and so that had, uh, that had a tremendous impact on Canada. You had all of these highly educated, um, left-leaning young people, men and women coming in. And, uh, if you go into areas of Vancouver today, Grandview is the one, Grandview where I live. Um, a lot of my neighbors, a lot of my friends, they came here during the Vietnam era. Right. Men and women. Huh. Uh, came here and uh, and made lives here, and they've they've made a huge uh, huge impact on that. Quite a lot they of Americans. The US? They came from the U.S. Mm -hmm. They came from the U.S. during the Vietnam period, and and um, you know there were quite a number of Americans who took the Carter amnesty, which I think was 1976, 1977, where they were able to go back into the United States, and if they had just been draft dodgers as opposed to deserters, and they were able to go back and escape prosecution and a lot of people went back mm. but you find people i mean a good friend of mine who's in his mid-30s his parents came here uh -huh. war resistors mm -hmm. in the vietnam era so um and he's got a lot of their kind of left-leaning left-leaning uh, values so um, that had a huge impact um you're talking going forward a little bit into um Gulf War and so on. You, you yeah, Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan. Yes. Um, starting to get a little bit more recent. I was actually surprised to find out that the war in Afghanistan went on for as long as the war in Vietnam. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I think from the point of view of, of Canada, it was far away. We weren't that involved. We had an, an entirely um, uh, volunteer army. You know, people who wanted to be in the military went into the military, so it didn't have that that um, that sort of thing. And I mean, I think of uh, I think of Jean Chrétien, the Prime Minister of the time, and and being asked in an interview what he thought his legacy was going to be, and he said uh, he said it was the fact that we didn't go into Iraq. He refused to go into Iraq. Britain went in, as right. an example. But Afghanistan seemed. You know, it seemed I'm, more like you were fighting terrorism as opposed to seeking out oil. Yeah, or fighting fighting terrorism, and I mean, as it's turned out, you're you know you're fighting for women's rights in a sense. You're 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 fighting for uh, probably a more secular society mm -hmm. if that would ever come out. Or that was that was what I think people believed that they were that they were uh, that they were fighting for against a, a theocracy mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, not having the impact. There were certainly Afghanis here, all kinds of Iranians who were here, Iraqis and so on, who would feel that in the same way that Ukrainian Canadians feel, uh, that this, this direct connection with wars that are going on halfway around the world. Mm -hmm. But it never achieved that kind of critical mass that, uh, the earlier wars did. Um, Korea, World War Two, World War One, mm -hmm. um, where, and I think that speaks also to to uh, there having been a more homogeneous population here. Mm -hmm. um, it's you also know, more a kind of a fair fight as opposed to you're just sending you know, tons of drones into bomb places where you're not no. seeing as many casualties here at home. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, the history of the history of war and history of you know Britain's imperial wars. Of course, I mean, you could talk for talk for days about that mm -hmm. um you know i mean there are all these other things about about <clears throat> canada and how 
all of this comes together, um, we, we don't have a climate here that could grow the plantation crops of the 18th century, 17th century. No sugar, no cotton. So probably for that reason and for that reason alone, um, there was not widespread slavery here mm. compared with the United States. You know, very famously, um, some of the, uh, some of the First Nations, uh, kept slaves on the West Coast. Um, there were lots of cases of black people getting out of the United States on the Underground Railroad and, and, you know, Africville in, in Halifax. There's a, there's a wartime story for you when the, uh. The Book of Negroes covers that pretty. Yeah, when that um, when that munition ship blows up and and it's in the harbor and and the Africville is right down on the harbor where the cheap land is and everything where the where the black people were living and so they they suffered disproportionately from that one. No, I mean it's fast. It, it, you know, history history is fascinating and and uh, listeners and viewers, please um, look 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 on YouTube, Vancouver Historical Society YouTube channel. And look at the range of, I mean, there are 50, 75 different talks that are up there over the last seven years, uh, seven or eight years. And uh, have a look at those. And some of them are going to be interesting, some of them not. Some of them, uh, you know, give you, give you an introduction into things. Start coming to our lectures. You know, mm-hmm. kind of get involved, get involved with that. Um, I don't think any of us who are involved, and I'm an amateur, an amateur historian, amateur in the old Latin sense of being somebody who loves history. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I don't believe I've got the answers. I just keep to a degree finding more questions. And, uh, and I think when you look at some of these issues as we've talked about war being, um, a case where in, in some ways it accelerates this, what's happening in the society this, with all of the stress. I wonder what's going to happen with climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that will be the next war that will really rally people, because there is going to be massive displacement. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Is uh, if we want to take the climate crisis seriously, we need to treat it like a war. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, um, we're sort of getting to the end of the questions that I have for you about war. We're wanting to wrap things up fairly soon. But is there anything that you think is uh, really important to touch on? related to the societal impacts of war um, before we start to wrap things up? Societal impact of war is displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, some people lose everything. Some people gain a lot. Um, it's just a total shakedown. And um, not surprisingly, wealthy people do better than poor people mm-hmm. at it. Um, people of the dominant group in a society uh, do better than the minorities in a society. Um, it accelerates processes that are going along and, and, uh, very often leads to a situation where the, um, human rights get just tossed onto the heap for the time being, uh, where there are, well, in some countries, uh, absolute atrocities taking place. In other cases, it's, um, how would you describe it? I guess it's it's the loss of civil rights. It's the loss of people's sense of citizenship, of sense of belonging, and then uh, societies rebuild themselves from that. Uh, if you look at the United States in the decade after the Vietnam War, how long it took for for people to begin to settle down uh, on there. Uh, not that 
it's settled down for very long. But I mean, a time of a time of extraordinary personal sacrifice, and then also a, a, a time of coming together. And so, you hear that uh, that trope, uh, that cliche about the Second World War generation being the greatest generation. You hear that, and whether that's true or not, really arguably, but a lot of self-sacrifice in that, a lot of suffering, a lot of a lot of coming together, and um, and you know, interesting times. Peacetime is pretty fraught uh, for a large part of our society now. So it's hard to know <laughs> how war would uh, how war would change that. But I think climate change will uh, will show us what we're in for. Right, um, and and that's actually um, a, a good time to just remind our listeners that. All of the topics we talk about on this podcast, they intersect with each other. We've talked about PTSD coming out of wars. We've touched on um, mental health and disabilities in, in two separate podcasts. We've talked about climate change in another podcast. So none of these issues are standalone. There's mm-hmm. always these intersections that are really interesting. And as we bring this to a close, there's one last question that I want to ask you, which is what our listeners can do to help. So we have this question at the end of all of our podcasts. You've sort of touched on this already. Mm-hmm. Go to the Vancouver Historical Society YouTube. Uh, go and see some mm-hmm. of those lectures. Educate yourself yeah. on the subject. What, what else might our listeners do? Uh, join an environmental organization. Mm-hmm. Try to get involved with groups that say that you could you can have a successful life by having smaller material goals than might otherwise have been the case. Try to live a little bit lower on the food chain. Try to look around for people that you can help. Figure out figure out some way that you can do an act of kindness. I mean, this sounds like kind of motherhood and apple pie cliches, and I don't really mean for it to sound gratuitous, but there is a lot that we can do. And a lot of the decisions that we make, I mean, everything about the way that we live, what our goals are, how we would, uh, how we consume energy, all these sorts of things. The way we're going now, we're, we're, we're obviously creating more and more inequality and, uh, a kind of an inequality that is, is staggering to me, somebody at my age, because it wasn't like this when I was a kid, you know, not to the same degree. You try to work towards a society that will be more equal mm-hmm. in every respect and, when you're feeling a little bit down because something isn't going your way, don't look for somebody to blame. Certainly don't look for somebody poor, somebody of color to blame. I'll leave it there. Wonderful. I think that's a great place to leave it. And thank yeah. you so much for being a guest on today's podcast. Yeah, it was very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, it was thank it you for inviting really interesting me. to hear what you had to say. Um, yeah. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling. Today, I've been joined by Michael Kluckner for a discussion about war. And I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.